0: Welcome back everybody to My Fave Queer Chemist. I'm your host, Becca.
1: And I'm Geraldo. We hope that y'all are doing all right and staying safe. We're excited to continue our Pride Month special with more amazing science and guests.
0: Remember that Black Lives Matter today and every day. With that, here's our show. Hi, everybody. Today, we're so excited to introduce you to an amazing graduate student. Would you mind introducing yourself?
2: Hi, yes. Um, Hi, my name is Dwayne Evans. My pronouns are he, him, his. I did my undergrad at the University of Southern California. I uh, did my master's at San Francisco State University where I worked with Dr. Pliny Pennings to um, understand disease evolution, particularly the evolution of drug resistance and HIV to PrEP medication. And I'm now a currently uh, rising third year PhD student at Harvard University and Dr. Cassandra Extivore's lab where I'm looking at the evolution of reproductive development across insect species. Um, As you probably noticed, I'm not a chemist, I'm a (laughs) biologist, but I'm so happy to be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're excited to have you. This yeah. has been really fun for our Pride Month special, getting to talk to people outside of chemistry, and like, mm-hmm. we're I think we're learning a lot too, which is fun. Yeah, we yeah. are. Yeah, it's
2: exciting. It's so exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah, so jumping into your research, so you did research, like you mentioned, on prep and HIV during your master's program mm-hmm. at San Francisco State University. Can you tell us a little bit about? your research there, and how you became interested in studying this. And maybe explain a little bit what PrEP is if our listeners don't know what that is.
2: Absolutely. Yes, of course. So PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, refers to um, just any medication that's used before an individual is exposed to HIV to prevent them from acquiring the virus. So I think nowadays Truvada is pretty popular. It's a Mm -hmm. combination of two medications in one pill form. Uh, that you take every day to basically prevent yourself from acquiring HIV. So um, my research interest was on a medication called Rilpivirine that was intended to be used as a long-acting form of PrEP. This is an injectable medication that's supposed to solve the issue of having to take a pill every day like you would with Truvada. Um, So essentially you just get a shot every four to eight weeks and you'd be good to go. However, there's the issue that resistance to Rilpivirine might develop in HIV. So um, with Truvada, if you develop resistance, you can simply stop taking the pill. But with uh, injectable Rilpivirine, you need to wait a number of weeks for the medication to clear your system. And so during this time, HIV could continue to develop resistance, and this could be an issue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, with this project, I really wanted to address the question of whether the possibility of developing resistance to this medication would outweigh the benefits of actually taking this injectable uh, rilpivirine as PrEP. So um, to answer this question, uh, my lab and I worked in collaboration with um, the data of, from a team from the University of Pittsburgh. And so this data consisted of HIV DNA sequences from humanized mice. So um, the mice in the control group that were not given this rilpivirine medication and the mice in the treatment group uh, were given rilpivirine. Um, and these mice in the treatment group still became infected with HIV despite the rilpivirine drug being present. So what I did um, was that I used the R programming language to look through these HIV sequences for drug resistance mutations to rilpivirine and we got these mutations off of the Stanford Drug Resistance Database So I found that for the treatment group, quite a few of the mice had a percentage of HIV sequences with um, a resistance mutation to rilpivirine. So initially, we found that the sequences that had, the mice sequences that had uh, rilpivirine resistance were above 1%, and this was a little worrisome because even a drug resistance percentage of 1% can cause this medication to fail. But when we looked at the control group, we actually found that the percentage of HIV sequences with um, Rilpivirine resistance was um, actually very similar to the treatment group. So this is kind of an exciting finding because it gave us reason to believe that this resistance we're seeing um, in HIV is actually, well, may not actually be caused by the Rilpivirine medication and Mm -hmm. could actually be a lot lower than it appears. So um, as we managed to find some resistance in the mice that were not exposed to this medication, we were curious to see how this finding would compare So, a data set for humans um, that were not exposed to rilpivirine or any antiretroviral drugs at all. And we were wondering if we would see a similar range of um, sequences with resistance to rilpivirine. So to our surprise, when we looked at this uh, human data set using R again, um, we did find a very similar percentage of sequences with uh, rilpivirine resistance. And we also found that the difference in resistance between this mouse and human data set was not significant. So based on this data, it, um, it was kind of exciting because it didn't appear that injectable rilpivirine increases resistance in HIV, and the resistance we see may um, have less to do with long-acting rilpivirine as PrEP and is more likely a function of HIV's capacity for mm-hmm. evolution. So this is a really exciting finding. Um, however, we should still remain vigilant about the possibility of HIV developing resistance to rilpivirine and other long-acting injectable medications. Yeah, so that's basically what I did for my master's. Um, To answer your question, how did I get interested in this work? Um, I kind of actually got interested in it by accident. So I came to SF State, just very interested in HIV research. Um, I had done a lot of reading about how black gay men were more severely impacted by HIV than white gay men. And I was like, what's going on here? How is this Mm -hmm. possible? So um, yeah, I think that just really sparked my interest, um, just kind of HIV work. And yeah, I managed to find Clooney, who's an amazing mentor. And yeah, we just, we just kind of uh, went from there. So yeah.
0: That's so interesting. It is really interesting. The scientific side of like researching prep. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it is.
1: So you've also done a lot on outreach work related to computer science and bioinformatics while you were there at SF State. Can you tell us about your experience participating in this type of outreach events? Yeah,
2: yeah. So um, I actually uh, I came up with the name for the PINK program, which stands for Promoting Inclusivity in Computing. And uh, this program is intended for biology and chemistry majors to learn more about coding and computer science. Um, so when I had entered uh, my master's program, um, I practically had no coding experience. So I felt like I could really understand my fellow biology majors, even chemistry majors would be really hesitant and fearful mm. of kind of just d- diving into the computer science world. I know I was pretty terrified myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm really excited that a few professors in the biology department and my PI, Pluny, um, came up with the idea of this program and uh, designing the curriculum so that students with little to no coding background could be introduced to computer science topics or to other biology and chemistry students. So for me personally, even though it was quite the challenge to learn how to code in such a short amount of time, um, I feel like I'm a much better teacher for it. So I helped design the curriculum for an introduction to coding with our class during um, the summer of 2016. I helped be a peer mentor for um, the PINK program's uh, 2017 summer class. coding program where we learned Python the basics of Python to basically simulate the evolution of drug resistance mutations in um, an HIV population and then we we all got to present this work at our department-wide summer showcase so it was really fun uh, really rewarding and um, yeah it was such a joy to be a part of something that I never really would have considered I'd be able to do (laughs) so um, yeah it was a great experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that, that at least like an introductory coding class should be added to most curriculums in the STEM field because, you know, as a chemist, I don't usually think about that, like as an organic synthetic chemist, mm-hmm. but I've had to use Spartan, which is, you know, a program we use to determine some energies and stuff, and I have no idea how <laughs> to Oh, yeah,
2: no, really. No, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And,
1: it's, it's, and having that kind of like help would be beneficial for I think every research because at some point you might need to, to, you know, do so computational studies.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like everything's so becoming so like uh, quantitative nowadays and we're just mm-hmm. having a massive amount of data. So I, I agree 100%. <laughs> it should definitely be taught in core classes. <laughs>
0: yeah. So can you tell us about your experience as the Vice President of the Black Excellence in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math organization while you were at um, San Francisco State?
2: Yes, of course. So this organization was actually inspired from the work of another master's student at San Francisco State, Annalisa Brown. She presented her thesis on the retention of Black students in the SFSU Biology Department. So um, up until her defense, many of us had just assumed that the retention rate for Black students was just simply low and um based on the number of black students we saw that didn't seem too surprising for us but um however the data she collected and presented during her thesis showed that the retention of black students in the department was actually declining over the years since 2010. so we were all in shock and thought this was unacceptable um so the few black students in our department and myself decided to form this organization bstem uh, black excellence in science technology engineering and math and we, we intended for this organization to provide the extra support and community for Black students that may not have been uh, received in the department. So when this organization was first formed, I was in my final year of my master's. A lot of our work was spent on just trying to get our organization established with the school and learning and trying to find how we can provide community resources for Black students. Um, such as coursework guidance um, and info sessions on how to apply to medical school or PhD programs. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that currently the organization is taking off and we're growing mm-hmm. in new members and um, you know that's just it's such a joy to kind of you know mm-hmm. see all of our work is really benefiting um, students. So um, yeah it was it's exciting, a blast uh, just working with so many amazing Black uh, students and you know being able to kind of pay it forward all the support I feel like I've gotten. So. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that's amazing. And I think that what you're saying about kind of like the origin of it goes back to like the need for research to be done on, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion um, initiatives in all of these different departments, I feel like especially Recently, this like push that we're seeing on Science Twitter in regards to the Black Lives Matter protests and really supporting students of color in, organi- in departments is really forcing labs and departments to really analyze like how well they're doing. Mm-hmm. At, and most of them aren't doing a great job at all, at least from what we've read and what we've seen. But having research done and having numbers and statistics to show like scientists love numbers they mm-hmm. love data they yeah. love and they i think that they're more willing i guess to kind of like take different issues seriously if there is numbers backing it and if there's data backing it which kind of sucks that they need that but i think that is just like why it's so important that data like that is collected for mm-hmm. different departments and different programs mm-hmm. Definitely.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's just, it's been such a long time uh, coming, you know, with recent events, and also just, yeah, I agree 100%. No, it's great, we are kind of having a greater flux of data coming out to um, support students that aren't as well represented <laughs> in yeah. these departments, but um, yeah, I think it's a long time coming.
1: Definitely. So hopefully- so you've also served as a, as a membership chair of the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanic, and Native Americans in Science, or SACNAS, as we most of us know it, yeah. um, while you were at San Francisco State. How was your experience uh, for, for you?
2: Yeah. So um, yeah. So at the time, our organization at SF State um, had multiple membership chairs, and so our main job was to just recruit more students into the organization, uh, speak to students who were more curious about it, who maybe had never heard of it before, <laughs> um, and just kind of provide as a liaison between these students and our and our organization chapter there. Um, So we had a lot of fun organizing events to provide support for marginalized students, um, especially those of Chicano and Native American backgrounds. So in addition to providing another source of community for students, it was a great way to prepare students for their first presentations at the annual conference and really just begin to network with other chapters and establish connections. I always loved how we were uh, very close with the UCSF SACNIS chapter as uh, many SFSU alums um, had become graduate students there. And so we hosted a lot of events with UCSF chapters as well as chapters at surrounding campuses such as Skyline College. And um, it was just an amazing opportunity to really connect with other students, provide this sense of community, and to really just feel like we're not doing this academic path all alone. So yeah, it was such a joy and an honor to be a part of all of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love Sagna so much. I'm part of the of the group of the chapter here at University of Michigan. And and I volunteered several times for many of the outreach events that they have. And there's there's one that I always remember is that we were volunteer for for Latinx kids for middle middle school kids. And some of them like didn't speak English and you know, they mostly speak Spanish. And I was able to, you know, give the demonstration of chemistry in Spanish to them so they could understand. And the their faces when they saw like a Hispanic scientists, you know, they could see themselves also being there in the future. So, yeah, SAGNAS does an incredible thing. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's so amazing, I think, to really just have, you know, spaces like these to just really give back to our communities. Like, you know, I really believe that, you know, science is not above society. And we really Mm -hmm. just, you know, it's, it's so important for us to be able to, you know, not only, Exp- you know demonstrate our work but really like mm-hmm. you know explain our work in a way that kind of makes sense to you know the communities we come from because you know without them we wouldn't really be where we are today um so yeah I think that's so amazing to have like organizations like SACNIS where we we're able to um meet that need and really I think express ourselves in a way that we don't always get to in our normal kind of day-to-day department mm-hmm. So I think that's so amazing
1: yeah definitely yeah
0: So you're now at Harvard, like you mentioned, getting your PhD in genetics and genomics? Genomics. I don't know why that word was like, I've never seen that word before. (laughs) Um, So how was that move from San Francisco to Boston? Um, And then what are kind of like the differences that you see from SFSU and Harvard?
2: Yeah, um, I do. I do have to be honest. The transition was pretty rough for me. It just—it seems like the difference between San Francisco and Boston is really just night and day. The weather here is harsh. Sometimes the people can be even worse. For me, I know I sound like a snob, but it's like the food is just a hard pass for me. I'm not the only one that thinks this. <laughs> but yeah, really, I was just, when I first got here, I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I can do this. I think I might have made a mistake. You know, I'm a born and raised California guy. Um, so to come from California, where winters are still sunny all the time, and the lowest it gets is, like, the mid-40s, and then to go to Boston, where it can get into the single digits, I was just like, this isn't acceptable It's my lifestyle. <laughs> I know. <don't." laughs> Like what is going on. Um, for me, it was really difficult as well. They never had to experience before was um, seasonal affective disorder. So that was huge for me. And it still kind of is, you know, I've never had really the issue of having to spend literally weeks to months just indoors all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I mean, the summers here, however, like it is kind of not right now, um, they're pretty nice. It's a shame we only get three months of this night's weather. <laughs> But uh, yeah, for me, it was a pretty difficult move, but you know, I somehow managed to stay here for coming up on three years now, which is so surprising. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess I'm finding some way to pull through. But um, yeah, I guess, um, I guess I could say I'm starting to appreciate California more and more every day. <laughs> but yeah, to, um, to answer your question about differences, I honestly don't think SFSU and Harvard could really be any more different. I mean, one's more of a minority serving institution, and um, in recent events, it kind of feels like here it's an institution where you're expected to serve as a minority. So. You know, it's really just, it was for me, it was such a culture shock, uh, you know, being a first generation college student, a first generation high school student, low income, person of color, queer, but you know, being all those identities at a university like SF State, which is a more public school, and you can meet a much more diverse range of students. So like I met so many other students who were first generation, low income, and were able to really kind of bond over those backgrounds and build a great support network, like, um you know, I loved going to class at SF state and realizing, you know, I'm not the only queer or black student. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I also kind of miss being at an institution where, you know, having an LGBTQIA plus organization is, um, almost redundant because it's just so well represented, Mm -hmm. um, in the school, but I'm coming here. It's unfortunately not really the case. It's a bit different. I think the population here is a bit more homogenous. So there's unfortunately, you know, kind of this feeling of being on the outside looking in.
0: Mm.
2: Um, You know, some other differences, like there's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of hidden curriculum here. I didn't realize how many peers in my cohort actually have parents that already have PhDs. And it was pretty, I guess it's pretty common to be able to call them for help with classwork assignments and playing experiments, which blew my mind. It still is like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. That's a thing. Yeah, I didn't realize how many, you know, peers have parents that are faculty members at the school it's just it was a huge you know culture shock like yeah I, I, I just yeah it was such a it was a completely different world to me so you know I've attended private school for undergrad but even then it was a there was a little bit more diversity in backgrounds you know, you're able to find students that you know still kind of have to work to support themselves yeah I mean like going back to computational work for a second I met a lot of people here who are like you know I've been coding since I was four or six and I'm like that's amazing wow. i really couldn't even afford a laptop or a computer mm-hmm. my final year of undergrad you know i usually have to like camp out overnight in the library or sneak into work so you know to me this is just a completely different space i'm very fortunate that i found a small group of students here though that have similar backgrounds and we really just support each other in navigating through this space yeah so some pretty huge differences but i think i'm kind of slowly but surely finding my footing i think um, yeah
1: It's amazing that you at least were able to find a community where you can, you know, feel like yourself and and feel supported.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. That's an amazing community.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us about your experience as a Black queer scientist in these different departments that you've been part of? I know you mentioned a little bit now, but I don't know if you want to expand a little bit on that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, of course. It's been um, it's been a little challenging for me, I have to admit. Um, so my experience at SF State, it was kind of challenging, but it felt like there was a bit more it was a bit more supportive in terms of departments. So our biology department has about 55 faculty at SF State. Um, there's only one black faculty member and one black staff member, um, to my knowledge. Currently. But to me, that's amazing because that was more black faculty and staff than I'd ever had in my life up to that mm-hmm. point. We also had many out LGBTQ faculty in the department. Our biology department chair is a queer woman. So I never had that in my life up to that point as well. So that was a huge, it really made me feel like, oh, I could, I could do this kind of academic thing. And it was such a support just to have those presences in the department. Mm-hmm. So yeah, coming to, you know, my departments here at Harvard, it's been a bit more of a different experience. Fortunately, I've kind of had to deal with struggles that you didn't really have to deal with back at SF State. For example, I've unfortunately had to end rotations early because of certain remarks or just not generally feeling that safe in the department. But whether this is reflective of the entire department, I can't really say. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, again, I've I've found a lot of support from organizations here, such as Minority Biomedical Sciences of Harvard, um, LGBTQ and Allies at Harvard Medical School, and um, LGBTQ at uh, the Graduate School of Arts and Science. Um, it's a lot more; these organizations are a lot more student-run, but they definitely provide that support that you know I may not have felt like I got in the departments. So I think you know I think the departments are slowly but surely starting to learn that you know this is kind of an issue here a lot of students don't really feel supported if they have mm-hmm. these identities but yeah but it still seems like there's a lot of work to do yeah
1: yeah yeah I, I think that if departments get the idea that if we feel comfortable we'll be better scientists then they'll start doing something yes yeah. <laughs> yeah. like we have i don't know I, it's it sucks that we have to give them something so they can give us something mm-hmm. but yeah you know that's sadly how it works nowadays yeah <laughs> So, how would you say your different identities intersect and how do these intersections play into your role as a scientist and as a graduate student?
2: Um, Yeah, you know, I actually... I sometimes get questions like, you know, do you identify more as black or more as queer? And, mm, you know, interesting. really, think, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, it doesn't, you know, for a lot of us, it doesn't work that way. We mm-hmm. can't really split our identities into fractions. You know, it's one mm-hmm. thing to be black. It's one thing to be clear. It's an entirely different thing to be black and queer. But you know, I think having these identities, um, I feel a lot more attuned to the needs and struggles of other students that also have these identities on their journey to becoming scientists, um, so, you know, like having these identities, I feel allows us to approach our science from a different perspective that allows us to recognize like details that, details that others have missed. So like, for example, field I'm in right now with uh, Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit fly, there's, um, there's a shocking smaller body of lim- literature on female flies in comparison to male flies. We're not really sure why that is. And it seems like it hasn't really been noticed that much in the field, but it's just, you know, examples like that, where we're able to kind of look at details that others might've overlooked Personally, you know, with these identities, it's it's been frustrating sometimes of feeling like I'm not doing my best work because I feel the need to constantly edit myself to not upset mm-hmm. the wrong people in my department and maybe like face repercussions for my career or mental health. So like, for example, I feel very comfortable in my lab. My PI is a queer black woman. She's amazing. 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 Right, she's so amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's just just unfortunate. I wouldn't, you know, for the department as a whole, I don't feel personally like I'd feel comfortable bringing a partner to a departmental event or Mm -hmm. even really disclosing my orientation with colleagues when they start talking about their partners. Um, You know, and this becomes very laborious, and um, it has such a high activation energy to even want to go to these departmental events, which I, you know, would still need to go to to make connections or potential collaboration Mm or a project yeah it's just yeah it can be really frustrating at times to feel like you need to really bite your tongue whenever there's like a racial or homophobic uh, microaggression you know sometimes on the worst days it feels almost like you're going back in the closet a bit which is mm-hmm. not the best mm-hmm. feeling. <laughs> so really despite all these struggles though I like to think I'm going to be a much better mentor for students by going through all of these and um, you know these experiences I can still use to just really kind of pay forward to other students so yeah
1: yeah. Definitely a mentor and a role model for for a lot of people. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. That's what I like to think.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, it's it's amazing that and I'm sure it took a while to get there, but kind of the positive outlook that you have on it now, I think that you know, those who go through some of that like daily almost trauma in a way of like even just showing up to work. I can't relate. And in, in the way of that, I'm like very white passing, but just kind of like, yeah, having to show up to work and kind of still have like a little bit of that fear of, you know, am I going to feel comfortable today? Am I ever going to feel comfortable? Are people like me ever going to feel comfortable? Mm-hmm. I think that we've we've talked a lot about that on the show in regards to being queer and kind of depending on how like outwardly you present, yeah. whatever that means. But Kind of like to the outside world, like how you show up to lab could mm-hmm. could potentially affect like how much you're respected or how, yeah, like visible you feel, how like seen you feel and things like that. And, and that can greatly affect your ability to do good science. I think like going back to what Geraldo said is like the only way that we get anybody to care is if we say like, we will be better scientists mm-hmm. if we can feel like we can show up to work 100% ourselves. That we don't have to go back into the closet, that we don't have to risk hearing or dealing with microaggressions every mm-hmm. day from our peers, from those in power, like our PIs or professors or department heads and things like that. So I, I don't know. I just, I like commend you a lot for kind of being like brave enough to even exist in these spaces is like, I think incredible, but.
2: Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, like yeah. you said, I think we really deserve to be, to bring our entire selves into you know our scientific work because like you said, we're, we do so much better. We have so much more to offer when we can exist as ourselves and not mm-hmm. express who we are which is a lot of energy. I know you guys talked a lot on the show about like, you know, really the impact that has on our work when we are really kind of suppressing ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have multiple identities, it kind of becomes Mm -hmm. worse. So yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. One hundred percent.
0: So kind of going along with that, um, if you don't mind, I'm I'm sure that you're asked this a lot. So I apologize if this is like a burdened question, but (laughs) how do you think that graduate departments can better support queer and trans people of color?
1: Yes,
2: yeah. Um, you know, I think a really good place to start, I think is just, at least from what I've seen in my department, um, my current departments, is just a willingness to acknowledge the struggles of these identities. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, currently, there aren't a lot of resources available. I mean, there are some, which is amazing, but you know, there, there's not a lot of resources available for Black or other people of color. And there's not a lot of resources available for LGBTQ individuals. So, you know, if you're not having a lot of, you know, resources available for these groups, then you can be sure there aren't enough resources for students at the intersection of these identities. Also, uh, when you, you know, when you have multiple identities, you can also, you know, imagine that if there are resources that are available only to like, for example, LGBTQ students, these resources may not actually be sufficient to impact Black LGBTQ students or other, Mm -hmm. you know, students of color. Um, And so that really has to, taken into consideration you know kind of going deeper i think to really support you know queer trans people of color we're gonna have to start having some uncomfortable conversations about support for these students that would extend beyond just scientific development Mm -hmm. so many of us can't just check our identities at the door when we enter the lab space you know we're still very much impacted by economic insecurity police brutality disparate access to health care i think a lot of us Get better at hiding these things, but um, they're still there. It's very difficult work, but I think we'll be surprised at how you know when we're centering the most vulnerable populations of students in the future. We're by supporting these students, we ultimately lead to supporting other marginalized groups. So um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that'd be a good place to start. <laughs> thank,
0: thank you, you so that. much. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Of course, of course, thank you.
1: So, who is your biggest role model in STEM field and why? And you can have more than one if you have more than one. Oh, great. Awesome. Um, (laughs) um,
2: Yeah, I'm not, you know, kind of growing up, I didn't, you know, one of the main reasons I got into science was really just I didn't see a lot of Black scientists. You know, you open your history textbook, you open, you know, literature, your literature textbook or music, you see like a wealth of like Black, you know, writers, composers, you know, historians, but like, you know, you don't see a lot of black scientists or mathematicians. And so I'm like, you know, what is, you know, what's up with that? So, you know, I'm excited to find that when I got to my master's, I was able to find those kinds of amazing people. So, cause I didn't really have like a role model, a scientific role model to look up to. But, you know, entering my master's, I'm really excited to meet some amazing scientists. And so like, for example, one of, you know, my biggest role models right now is my, one of my PIs at San Francisco State, Plumey Pennings. Um, she really taught me that science can be you know, supportive and encouraging fields. And of course, I'd say my other role model would be uh, my PI as well, Dr. Cassandra X. Devor, um, just really for just, you know, showing me that despite the struggles we face, we can still find joy and purpose in these spaces that are not designed for people like us. Yeah, so to them, I, yeah, I think I'd say they're my biggest role models right now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That, that's I, I love asking this question. I think it's like, it's definitely my favorite one, interview to interview. I, I love hearing the joy and respect and appreciation that mm-hmm. these younger queer scientists and even some of the older people that we've talked to have for the people that have m- impacted their lives. I yeah. think it mm-hmm. warms my heart. It's pretty so, yeah. sweet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, last question if people want to connect with you, how can they? do that via social media or otherwise
2: yeah yeah so um right now i'm most currently active on twitter um at run dme or you can search us for Dwayne evans i have an instagram and a facebook but they're currently collecting dust i'm slowly trying to (laughs) change that (laughs) but um yeah right now i'm mostly active on twitter
0: awesome
1: yeah yeah i don't know how people can i I can't have like active on multiple social media (laughs) like there was a time when i was super active in snapchat but i was like a long time ago mm-hmm. and then i was super active on instagram and now i've been active on twitter but i cannot keep up with all at the same yeah. time it's
2: hard right it's just like i don't know like for, i don't know if you guys feel this way as well like for instagram like i okay, gotta find the perfect photo or whatnot mm-hmm. and then facebook mm-hmm. you're like why would you put this on twitter do i really need to put this on facebook again? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah
2: yeah it's so hard to keep up with multiple forms i think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was all we had for you. Thank you so much for such an incredible conversation and for telling us a little bit about your life. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much again for having me. This is, um, this is so amazing. Um, I've actually been following you guys for a while now and listening to your podcast. I'm like, this
0: is really (laughs) cool.
2: You you know, I'm always excited to meet more, you know, queer scientists. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I didn't have this growing up, so Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's so cool to have this, you know, space and have this, uh, Source so thank you guys for that. Thank you for being
0: part
1: of part of it.
0: Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to meet you in person at some point. I would
2: love that. I would love that. Yeah, we can meet.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, thank you so much again. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, (laughs) you you too. too. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Let us honor Pride Month by showing up for our trans siblings and the black community who both need our support right now.
1: As always, remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at @MFKCpod. Take care everybody and stay safe. We'll see you next week.
0: Bye.
1: Adiós.